And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Race is on, and with F1 summer shutdown kicking in, it's the ideal time to discuss the implications of the driver market shenanigans and ask who needs to do better in the second half of the year. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to talk all things F1 are Mark Hughes and Claire Cottingham. Mark, how are you? How's the summer break treating you? Oh, very well so far, yes. I'm in, I'm a, I'm in northwest um, Spain on my way to Portugal, on the road, driving. Hopefully you're not podcasting and driving simultaneously. No, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> worthy challenge. And also, hello, Claire Cottingham from racefans.net, standing in for Scott Mitchell. Feeling up to that particular challenge? What a question. I don't know if I've got enough words to fill in for Scott Mitchell, but um, I'm hoping to do an okay job. That's that's where I'm That's where I'm aiming. You should average. aim higher. You should aim higher, Claire. <laughs> well, you're in for quality over quantity in terms of a Scott standing, so that, that's all right. We, uh, we have high expectations. <laughs> but amazingly, even though Formula One is in hiatus, there's plenty going on and hoping nothing changes in the driver market in the moments between us recording this and, and releasing it. We do need to talk a little bit about what's going on with Alpine, Mark. We've covered the intrigue surrounding Oscar Piastri's unwillingness to take that Alpine seat and what's going on there in other podcasts. But one aspect we haven't really touched on is that he's one of two drivers, the other being Fernando Alonso, who have basically walked away from Alpine. It's best of the rest in 2022, doing all right. Is that a pretty bad reflection of its potential, given two drivers are so keen to walk away from it for teams that are ranked lower? I honestly think it isn't a reflection of anything bad that's happening at Alpine. Rather, I think Lauren Rossi, the boss at Alpine, has simply been caught out by Alonso's willingness to take the nuclear option in response to Rossi not giving him the duration of contract he sought. Because that negotiation was dragging on, in hindsight, maybe Alonso was deliberately dragging it on, waiting to see what Seb was going to do, there was time for Piastri's management to start talking to McLaren, probably in the expectation that Alonso would eventually stay at Alpine. 
by the time Alonso presses the button to leave, they've gone and potentially lost Piastri too. So careless negotiation, given the potential volatility of the situation. But I, I don't believe, and I cannot know this, but I don't believe either of them have thought, oh, there's something I'm not liking the look of about this team. I think rather it's just events have been triggered. It's perfectly feasible, you might even say likely, that they've each left for less competitive teams. Uh, personally, I think Rossi was crazy not to agree to Alonso's two-year con- request. It, it could have been very straightforward, and Piastri would then do those two years at McLaren, ready to come back to the fold if Alonso stopped after two or, two years or three years. I think people way overestimate the effect of age on driver performance. So you sort of you know, 40, early 40s onwards. I don't think it's an issue. I think it's motivation with, with his the speed, not age, and I don't think anybody can doubt Alonso's motivation. And I don't it, it, age actually I don't believe look, looking at the case studies of drivers who have gone on um it it looks like it's not until you hit about 50 that there is actually a serious physical deterioration in how phys- on how fast you can drive a car. Um and I think that misunderstanding because drivers usually retire well before then for other reasons. I think this misunderstanding has led Alpi into this mess, and I don't think there's actually anything big and bad wrong with the team. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that. I think it's just the situation has triggered one guy going, which is impacted on what the other guy's plans are. Yes, yeah, sir. You don't see drivers suddenly dropping off a cliff, which is what Alpine seems to be concerned about with Alonso with that one plus one deal they were offering. And what do you make of this, Claire? Do you agree with Mark that it's not a reflection on Alpine's potential, or do you think that if people are so willing to jump out of that car, there might be some question marks? I think it's very curious, isn't it, that it's all sort of happened at the same time with what we saw from. Alpine before with was obviously they were Renault beforehand and, and Daniel Ricciardo obviously didn't last long there either and decided to to jump ship and fair enough you know to a different team that's absolutely fine but Fernando doing it in the same sort of way you know not even giving them the the benefit of a phone call really I mean they sort of found out on the day that the Aston Martin announcement was made you know it's that's that's what I find quite curious about it and then how ferocious I think Oscar Piastri was about it in his tweet as well. And you have to remember, he's not, he hasn't got a lot. I know he's got Mark Webber behind him and things like that, but he hasn't got a lot of, you know, brute strength behind him in terms of, of Formula One big boys, if you know what I mean, big people behind him sort of thing. But it just, something doesn't add up. And I, I can't tell you what it is because obviously I don't work for the team, but it does feel like they've jumped ship and cut ties quite aggressively quite quickly and like Mark said it could be absolutely nothing it could just be circumstantial but I don't know there's part of me maybe it's the conspiracy theorist in me that sort of thinks something has happened there but I I guess you know unless Fernando comes out and talks about it we'll we'll never really know but it it is an interesting scenario for sure. I'm sure Fernando Alonso will talk about it one day he likes to get his (laughs) message across but Mark looking at this do you think this is a a valuable learning experience for Lauren Rossi in particular, because obviously he's the main man, the CEO of Alpine. He's been heavily involved. The team principal is Otmar Safnauer, who has all the experience in the world. He's a very shrewd operator. So it does seem like perhaps the buck stops with the man right at the top in, in Rossi, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, Lauren was the, um, the guy that's in charge of the driver recruitment and the negotiations. Um, and Otmar's there to aid him. But uh, yeah, I think he's just been... He's overestimated the hand that he had, I think, and um, it wasn't as though it it was unpredictable, given that it's no secret that Seb was 
humming and hawing about whether he continued or not, and that he was going to be given a, a, de- a decision around about the time that he did because he'd promised the team that he would. So, yeah, it was it, it? Lawrence seemed to do to to be having this uh, negotiation as if he held all the cards. Um, I suppose, in the sense that the Aston Martin's not been as competitive a team this year as Alpine. Um, yeah, he had he had a strong hand, but it didn't have a you know a, a total. Um, he didn't. Alonso wasn't without options, and um, if you look at the history of how Fernando um, negotiates, he's, he's quite capable of uh, you know just suddenly going in a completely different direction. And I think he's he's underestimated um, the strength of his hand and uh, the nature of the beast he was dealing with. But it is interesting. Alpine have sort of made progress this year. I, I, I'm a bit loath to say it's been a really good season for them because they're at the front of the midfield, which is where they were in 2018. So it, it's not on a big timeline, dynamic progress, but they have had a, a strong season. Probably you can say they have had the fourth strongest car. They are ahead of McLaren, I think, on pace just on the averages, but it's very, very, very close that battle still to be resolved. They're only four points ahead. But Alpine does at least seem to be on the up. They'll be at the cost cap probably next year. There's still more people coming in. The facilities are improving. So everything should be pointing in the right direction there, even if the, the driver lineup isn't quite what they hoped. Yes, I agree. And um, it, they've been a, a more consistent force than McLaren this year. And it doesn't look like the car has any particular weaknesses. It's just a, a little bit off the top teams in, in, in all respects, whereas the McLaren does have specific weaknesses, and so do all the other cars in that um, midfield group, whereas uh, the the Alpine just looks um, at a fairly consistent level and is responding to d- developments. Yeah, and the hit rate for new parts seems to be pretty good this year as well, which is encouraging. They've had a new parts pretty much every race of some way, shape or form, obviously a couple of bigger upgrades, but drip feeding things in, which is work very, very well. So, yeah, a lot going on <laughs> reasonably well at Alpine. But I guess, I guess in a way, it's an uh, interesting opportunity for Esteban Ocon, isn't it, Claire? He's, uh, he's there. He's the man who signed for the long term. Nobody's talking about him because it's the other seat that's the concern, but he's going to be the incumbent driver. And depending on exactly what happens with his teammate, that kind of makes him the senior driver, whoever comes in, because he's the one who has that continuity. So, nice opportunity for him. Yeah, he's, he'll be... Um, he'll be watching this from his boat in Monaco or wherever he's living at the moment with a, yeah, I think he'd be having a great time. And and it's true. I I mean, Esteban has been a really interesting character in F1 in general, hasn't he? He's won a race, but that was due to circumstances elsewhere. But I think his relationship with Fernando was becoming quite strained anyway. We saw in the last race, you know, the, the two were bumping wheels quite often. And throughout the season, they've been told that they, they can they can race, they can race. But Fernando seemed to be getting a little bit more increasingly annoyed at, at uh, Esteban Ocon, almost as though, you know, like the senior dog gets a bit annoyed at a puppy. It felt a little bit like that at times, you know. So so I think for him, he'll he'll be absolutely loving this. It's a chance for him to, to grow at the team. He's got his future sorted. He's performing well as well for the team as we've been talking about the you know the Alpine and, and McLaren sort of rivalry that's been going on this season it's it's a great opportunity I think for him and he, it's a real chance now for him to to bed himself into a team and not have the overshadow of, of uh, you know a two-time world champion um, doing better than him and, and you know speaking out more because he can because he's a, an older driver and he's being able to pick up that um, that clout I guess um, 
again, not sure if that's the right word, but I'm, I'm going to stick with it. But um, yeah, so I think it's going to be great for him. I think it's going to be a really interesting opportunity to see how how he grows with the team now. It is interesting the way that their their kind of great mates act has deteriorated a little bit more recently. They made a lot of it over certainly last year in terms of collaborating and really working together on track. They've had a few little moments this year. Saudi Arabia they had a bit of a costly uh, battle that allowed Bottas to gain a place. And then, yeah, the, the start of Hungary, as you say. So interested to see how that goes in the second half of the year. But let, let's talk Alonso. We talked about it on the podcast at the time, but given he's a driver who, rightly or wrongly, he'd say wrongly, has a reputation for bad decisions in terms of where he drives, do you think this move is really going to work for him in the long term? Yeah, he's got the length of contract, very big paycheck, but can Aston Martin be successful on the timescale he needs, given that while age is but a number, there will be a point where time runs out for him? Honestly, no. I don't think it's the right move to head to Aston, but obviously he's been told something that maybe we don't know about their development and how they're going to develop into the next few seasons. So there's got to be something that Fernando has been told that we don't know about. I think the worry is that he could have is to fall into kind of what Sebastian's done really going over to Aston Martin. And clearly we know off the back of Ferrari, Sebastian's career was in, when it was in a very different place from where it was when he was at Red Bull. But it seemed that even as a four-time world champion, he couldn't get that Aston to really do much. And even with all his skill and experience behind him, he still wasn't able to make that Aston really do much. So it'll, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean I'm not his manager, so I don't know. Maybe it's a great idea. Maybe he's going to be absolutely great there. And, and he'll be the number one driver because whatever you want to say about Lance Stroll of the reasons that he's there, he's not as strong as Fernando Alonso as a, as a driver in general. So he will probably be the, the, the number one driver in terms of that, but, but whether it's, whether it's the right choice, I just, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one. And I don't know what the answer is because we won't know until Fernando gets out in that car and sees what he can do with it. He's made that Alpine do things that I think we never thought it would do this season. So it'll be incredibly interesting to see. Um, so I've sort of gone back on what I said there. I said, no, it was a bad choice. And now I've gone back and said, I don't know. I'm not his manager. But yeah, I think I think more than anything, it'd be quite fascinating to see what he could do with that Aston. I think, I think I'll put the positive spin on it. It'll be fun to see what Fernando Alonso can do in an Aston Martin. I think if you were his manager, you'd be quite happy because your 10% will be worth... Uh, I am money, money, money. <laughs> exactly. If the numbers we're hearing are right, something like 1.8 million euros, that 10% might yes. be worth. But I'm having a lovely yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, Mark, what do you think? It's a good signing for Aston Martin, isn't it? But for Alonso, does this risk being a pyrrhic victory for him in that he's stuck it to Alpine, but he's ended up on a, a questionable lifeboat? Yep, that's absolutely the risk. That's um, you, You've summed it up perfectly. Um, the Aston has made some great signings on the aero side. Um, it's recruited heavily from both Red Bull and Mercedes. Um, but it takes time. It takes time to make all that come together and get it functioning all good in the same direction. It's, it, the team has expanded a lot, as we know, in the last couple of years. And it's um, just about hitting the, the, the cost cap. And, you know, it get, getting what had been a very small team operating as efficiently when it's um it's got 200 new recruits over the last couple of years it's it's not the work of a moment so the question the, the, the clock's ticking you know fernando's age is he's going to be probably 40 43 44 um whether depending whether he does two years or three years um and you know is it going to be is it going to come good in time 
Um, so it might do, but the, the risk is that it's it, it's a less competitive. He's got his bum into a less competitive car than if he just stayed where he was. That's that's absolutely the risk. It's going to be interesting to see what he has to say. So, Claire, are you looking forward to getting to Spa? And on Thursday, he'll obviously have to talk about it. He often has that little mischievous glint when he's talking about this sort of thing. So where, where do you think Alonso will be at when he, uh, when he tells us about his thinking? I mean, he'll do what every driver does, where he'll talk about how much he's loved his time at Alpine and how he's looking for a new challenge. And he's off to Aston Martin to do that. Um, whether he'll... The, the wonderful thing about Fernando is you're never quite sure whether he's playing a game with you when he says things. Um, we spoke to him uh, on Thursday ahead of Hungary and we all had this you know, conversation about his future and where he was going to go. And he said, I'm going to get it all sorted. And then after the race, he said, it's going to be all sorted by Spa. And, and actually he was, uh, you know, he was right. The day later, he had decided, you know, that he was off to Aston Martin. But then there was all this talking about, oh, well, negotiations are open, but I'm still really happy at Alpine and I want to stay at Alpine, but obviously negotiations are open. And I said to him, well, if, if you're happy at Alpine, why are you opening negotiations? And didn't have an answer for it. And and this is the thing with drivers. They have their set responses to certain things, but whether that set response is actually the truth, we never know. So I would assume Fernando will come out and say he's very happy about his move and he's looking forward to a new challenge and he's excited to work with the team. And that'll probably be about it. But uh, it will be interesting to try and see if we can find out the exact reasonings and exactly what he's been told. Um, we do know that some of it obviously is to do with money, that Aston were offering more money than Alpine were, as far as we can understand it. So hopefully he's been promised, like Mark was saying, you know, they have they've made improvements this season and, and hopefully maybe he's been told a little bit more than maybe what we've been told. Did you see his little Instagram video that he put out just after the whole Piastri thing emerged? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a little video of him grinning. That, that's got to be a message, hasn't it? Always hidden messages in everything with drivers, isn't there? There's always something you can uh, you can take away from it. And Mark, looking at, <laughs> we just talked about the, the Alonso mischievousness, should we say. He's got a, a political side to him. That combination of Alonso and Lawrence Stroll, possibly in a team that, that might be underachieving next year. They've got great potential. I'm sure they'll get there. But it, it's an interesting little tinderbox, isn't it? It's an explosive mix. It's just a question of whether as a spark goes in there. Um, and if if everything happens nice and smoothly, it won't. But um, if there's some becomes some point of contention where they each think very differently about what's wrong, and then yeah, it's 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 potentially explosive. <laughs> Two very interesting characters. That's going to be a big storyline to watch next year. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Mark, let's look up at the front of the grid. Mercedes finished the first part of the year pretty strongly. Gazing into your crystal ball, what can we expect in the second half of the season? How fearful do you think... Rebel and Ferrari should be, if not just for the coming months, but also for 2023, given the just amount of work Mercedes has done in understanding its problems. It's made plenty of progress. It's now got a fairly sanitary car compared to the bouncing thing that it was for the first five or six races, even if it doesn't have the mechanical qualities to go with its improved aero. Um, realistically, it's half a second off the pace in the races, um, which is less than it was. 
Um, but all it takes, as we saw in France and Hungary, is for a problem at Ferrari or Red Bull, more usually Ferrari, uh, and that's, that's them on the podium. Um, they're well clear of the best of the rest now, and I'm sure they'll continue making progress, but I still find it a bit of a stretch that they will gain half a second on those two teams of raw pace by the end of the season, given that those teams will still be improving as well. But at least they're now in a sort of area where lucky breaks with a safety car or problems elsewhere it gives them a shot at the odd win. Yeah, but I, the I think that the, the, the in terms of the, the the title fight, I don't think Red Bull need to to fear them. In fact, I, I think Red Bull will be welcoming them being more competitive because it um, it's it potentially gets them in between um, them and Ferrari. So um, yeah. They will have some good races, and it wouldn't be at all surprising if if they snatched the odd victory here and there. But they, I don't picture them being able to dictate the pace um, at any stage. But who knows? It is interesting to see what they come up with next year as a result of this, because often teams talk about difficult times really helping them because you research things in such enormous depth. They've got this great experiment running this year that that should mean they've got tremendous knowledge and be able to apply that to next year. That, of course, is the theory. Whether it works out in practice is uh, another question. Otherwise, whoever does badly would always do really well the next year. And as we know, that's not the case. Claire, what have you made of Mercedes, particularly with Lewis Hamilton? People were asking early in the season, oh, is he losing interest? But he seems to have been quite energised in recent times, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. He's um, he's definitely... Well, I mean, he's doing better. I mean, that's it, really. They were having all these problems at the beginning of the season. Um, Lewis is always very... Uh, he speaks up a lot about his uh, the car and the problems he was having. And, you know, after Baku, he stepped out of the car and his back was in absolute tatters. You know, it, it was not a comfortable drive for him. And now, like you say, with the, with the issues of Ferrari struggling to benefit from any of their own, you know, good things of their car, they get pole position, they throw it into the wall or whatever it is, strategies. Mercedes are there waiting in the wings to pick up the pieces. And and I think that's a really interesting thing is looking at the, I mean, there's lots of things that people have done out there of how many points Leclerc's lost to Verstappen in, in this championship fight and how much closer they could be. The points difference now is is incredible when you look at where Mercedes are in terms of what they've done over the last few races. Um, George as well has been on the podium. We've seen what double, is it back-to-back podiums from them both? And that's capitalising off, off the mistakes of others. And, uh, and that's not usually what we see from Mercedes, obviously, because they're dominating and great. But I guess, as we've been saying for ages with Hamilton, as soon as the confidence comes and you pick up a few um, podiums here and there and the car starts to feel a bit more comfortable, you you're inevitably going to be a bit more happy out there, really, aren't you? So, yeah, it's been a nice turnaround because I think it's been a, a really a nice story, isn't it? To see, no one likes to see teams not doing well, even a seven-time world champion. You like to see teams learn from their mistakes and do better. And Ferrari, I think, could look at Mercedes and and their ethic. You know, I think what I think this is what I find most interesting about Mercedes is that they always or tend to say when they make a mistake. Um, you often hear Toto saying, you know, we've not got this right. We're not doing this. We, you know, we're, we're working on this. We're trying to make this work. Whereas with Ferrari, you don't often hear them say, actually, we made a mistake. So I think Ferrari could learn in that way from Mercedes moving forward. But um, yeah, I'm quite happy to see it, to be honest. It's nice. It's nice to see someone new on the on the podium. And hopefully by the end of the season, we'll see a bit of a nice three-way, three-way team battle. 
extraordinary, really, that Mercedes are only 30 points behind Ferrari <laughs> yeah. in the Constructors' Championship. That's quite remarkable. Uh, the other thing we should talk about briefly, Mark, is, is George Russell. What's the verdict on him over the first half of the season? Obviously, some were saying he had the upper hand over Hamilton. We have seen in the past few races, Russell's been performing well, but Hamilton's probably had the greater underlying pace. So how do you see his performances this year? Yeah, great. And um, it, it pretty much what... Um it's certainly what I expected, given his what he did in the Williams and then in his stand-in at Mercedes a couple of years ago um, at Saki. So um, I think people were maybe expecting um, to take a, a while to match up to Hamilton's pace. I didn't see it that way. I, I saw him as absolutely a, one of the elite drivers already, and he would go head-to-head with Lewis, and there would be very, very little in it. And it would be decided by either circumstances or setups, or you know who got into the rhythm, or who who had to do a, a session with the wrong setup and was playing catch up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it'll swing between them. And it's been absolutely like that. There's nothing between them, n- nearly nothing. Um, yeah, the underlying pace, I'd, I'd agree. Lewis has probably tended to edge it, but by nothing, very very small. Um, so yeah, I think they've got two fantastic drivers there, and. Um, if they get a, a good car next year, it's going to be epic. I think what's also been really interesting, Ed, just to go back to Lewis Hamilton, is like you, you, like you mentioned, his he was waning in terms of how he was speaking about racing and how long he wanted to stay. Obviously, in, in 2020, wasn't it? He only signed for, was it 2021? He only signed for a year. And then he now is sort of talking about, you know, joking about racing into his 40s. And I think that is... Uh, it's just really fascinating his mindset and how it's changed, and um, yeah, I think he could surprise himself by this by this point by racing into his forties. I don't know if he will, but uh, but it's definitely there has definitely been a, a mind. Maybe it's all mind games. I don't know. They, they do love mind games, but it, there's definitely been a shift in the way that he talks about his future now, for sure. Perhaps this difficult year is actually going to extend Hamilton's career a bit because he wants to end on a high. It might have that effect. Whereas if he'd able to win the title this year you might have thought that's fine I've got the eighth title off I go well F1 may be in its summer shutdown but it's the ideal time to consider your grid rival strategy grid rival is the fancy motorsport game that includes the race's own league Mark I let you make some recommendations to me once before it wasn't great but I'm going to let you have it again because I want to get an edge over Scott I've got Verstappen and Leclerc in so who do you think I should consider particularly from the mid-range and cheaper options for the run of races after the break as I've told you before, Ed, listen very carefully to what I say, and then do the opposite. Specialist knowledge doesn't give you any more likelihood of predicting results than a randomer. So logically, Alpine and McLaren have now pulled clear of the likes of Alpha and Alpha, Alpha Romero and Alpha Tauri, where Aston Martin is a bit more variable. Sometimes it can be in Q3, sometimes Q1. So probably get an Alpine and a McLaren driver and an Aston driver. Is that How many can you have? How many drivers can you have? Yeah, I've got three slots. So I've got five. Got three total. slots. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd go for one each from Alpine, McLaren, and Aston, and I'd leave out the Alphas, Tauri, and Romero. But um, that's the logic. Now do the opposite of that, and you'll be fine. So Gasly, Bottas, and Nicholas Latifi—that'll be much. Well, that's up Actually, to you, but that's not what I advised. <laughs> 
I got Nicholas Latifi, uh, Latifi last time, but it's uh, yeah, it didn't pay off. But you know, some people are very, very good at predicting this kind of thing. I do have to add in a correction to last week's update about the races league. I must have been too quick to check the rankings because actually the leadership did change. Raniel Dicardo has taken the lead on a massive 13,127 points with Jackie 789-58103 just 11 points behind. There's an epic title battle there, even if there isn't one in the real F1 World Championship. Grid Rivals still open for sign-ups. Plenty of time to consider your team choices in August, so download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can get involved. The link is in the episode description for this podcast. Well, as it is the August shutdown, the teams and drivers have the chance to recharge batteries, mandatory two-week break. Some need that break a bit more than others and need to pick up more in the back end of the year. So I'm going to get everyone, pick out a team or driver that falls into that bracket. So Claire, you first. Who must do better? Ferrari. Do I have to say why? Do I really at this point in the in the year need to say why? They need to do better. Um I mean, as, as Charles Leclerc said uh, after France, he said, you know, I don't deserve to win a championship if I if I do this, if I put the car into the wall. Um, he does have these unforced errors that we see quite often. Um, Ferrari in general seem to pull their strategy out of a hat sometimes in terms of what they decide to do. Uh, you know, everyone was baffled why they put Leclerc onto, onto hards at the end of, of, Hamil- of uh, um, Hungary. There was many different things, even even when we heard that radio message from Carlos Sainz to his team engineer saying, oh, it's a it's a stop-go penalty. And he was like, no, it's five seconds. You know, why are they making these mistakes? I know, obviously, we only hear a certain amount of it on the radio, but they can't make these mistakes because teams like Red Bull aren't making those mistakes. If you were both making the mistakes, maybe, maybe you could sort of get away with it. It would look a little bit, maybe Mickey Mouse, but you could get away with it a lot more. But if you are the one making these glaring mistakes when you've got the fastest, well, one of the fastest cars out there, what what more can you say? You know, you're, you have to start taking responsibility for the fact that you are making mistakes and this championship is slipping away. And I think... For a driver like Charles, he will be world champion, but he won't be this season because they've just thrown away too much. Yeah, it has been an extraordinary start to the... Yeah, do you see a, a way for Ferrari to fix this part? Do you see they've got the inclination to really tackle it? I'd see that their problem is the... Um, I mean, we talked, we've talked about it before on previous podcasts, but that balancing point between acceptance of failure and responsibility for failure um between that and um the the old uh school ferrari thinking of this is somebody's fault and somebody must pay the penalty so they they don't want to go down that school of management because it's 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 rubbish and has been proven to be so over decades before um and before and after the, the Ross Braun Jean Toddy and the eliminated that and showed what Ferrari was really capable of when he got rid of that. But you you can't just take responsibility away. People still have to have responsibility. So they don't seem to have found the, the current Ferrari that balance between accepting, taking responsibility for failure, um, uh, but not making it personal, uh, recognizing the, the, the problem and, and, and fixing the problem rather than pointing the finger. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I guess they've got a, a few weeks to, to mull over it, Mattia and thing. But I think, um, you know, it's uh, probably deeper seated than a, a reset over the summer. I think it, um, it, it's probably something that needs to be built in 
structurally and into the philosophy and it needs to be thought about very carefully and uh, sort of built into the DNA, if you like. And uh, that's, I think, the, 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 the getting rid of the old climate of fear that was there until Benotto took over is a good thing, but I think it's only part of the, the, the building part the, the the building process if you like um so they've, they've they've ticked that box but they haven't yet replaced it with what needs to be replaced but at the same time technically they're flying they're they're a much more competitive team in terms of the car that they've produced this year than they have been for years and years so it's not all bad it's just uh, there's something that they're not quite getting right um and that's it, it could be a while coming and that's what I think Charles was saying at the end of, of the Hungary race. I pulled him up on his point of him saying, oh, well, I don't deserve a, to win a championship. And I said, well, do the team after the mistakes we've seen. And he said, well, where we've been in the past to where we are now is is just night and day. And for that reason, yes, in the future we do. And I see his point and I do really understand where he's coming from. But the point is, is that they are further along in terms of, being better than they were than 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 on paper showing, if you know what I mean, because of these mistakes that have been made. Um, but I will say that Charles has been one of the most gracious drivers in terms of when these sorts of things have happened. He has come back out and he has, you know, put the smile on his face and um, in, in very tough situations um, and, and situations where he's blamed, blamed himself and where he's blamed the team. But he's always come back out, maybe if it's a race later or something like that, with a big smile on his face. And you've got to give him credit for that sort of mentality as well of being able to, you know, get back up and, and you know, brush himself off and, and carry on. Well, Mark, would you like to pick a team or driver that needs to do better? Um, I would have said Daniel Ricciardo, but I think it's too late. Um, so uh, Mick Schumacher. Mick Schumacher's fighting for his career. Um, his place at Haas is not assured. And um, if he doesn't get a place there... Uh, he's got to play somewhere else and it's not easy to see where that would be. So he needs to impress. I mean, he's impressed occasionally um, in, in, in little bursts, but he's got to start really being absolutely level pegging with Kevin Magnussen and, and occasionally beating him uh, for the rest of the season and can't be giving anything away to him because that's, you know, that's what he's being measured against. He came into the season acknowledging that's how he's going to be measured and if you measure him, he's behind and that's not, you know, you, you you, yes, you you sort of take a reading of the potential of uh, a young driver from his peaks rather than his averages, and his peaks have been okay, have been pretty good. But he needs to. Re- I mean, second year, you need to start stringing it all together and showing that you just need a competitive car and you'll fly. And he hasn't convinced of that. He, he's not done that yet. But he's he's got enough time to do it. But only just. Claire, I think you did a, a sit down interview with Mick Schumacher, didn't you, recently? What's his approach and mindset do you think to the second half of the year did he give you any clues so Mick is an interesting character because he is very as you can imagine very very um guarded in what he talks about um obviously um questions surrounding his father and and his family isn't really asked so uh, whenever you talk about anything that isn't that he is he is happy to speak about it but it's very hard to get much from from Mick when you have a sit-down interview with him he he very much is um is quite heavily PR'd in how he speaks um, and doesn't give a lot away. Um, in terms of his career, though, he was he was speaking about his this pattern that he has where he is not very good or, or not as good as he is in the second part of the season. The second half of the season, um, like it was when he won his F2 championship, is 
remarkably better than it in then the first half of the season so he was saying that he thrives under pressure and the more pressure he is under the better he performs which is great absolutely great but it gets to the point like mark was saying when pressure doesn't matter anymore because you might not be in a seat anymore you have to start performing at the same time under this pressure he reacted incredibly well off the back of um the the bosk and sasina being very honest in terms of uh, the the cost of the crashes in in Monaco and and uh, where was the other place that Schumacher crashed Jeddah the big one in Saudi, um, and and it was this it was this incredibly awkward conversation that we were having in Baku where basically Steiner was saying if he crashes again we're going to have to have some serious conversations and and Mick was at the table next to him and he heard this obviously and he would have seen it in the media and things like that and. Since then, he's reacted incredibly well. You know, he's got his first points and then he couldn't stop scoring points and and he has turned things around. Um, so whether we see this sort of upwards journey for, for Mick continuing, I don't see why they would then get rid of him and put someone else in that house because, you know, who else is waiting in the wings really? I know there's plenty of drivers, but the F2... Um, the F2 grid at the moment, I wouldn't say there's anyone that, that would be... I mean, I can't... Apart from Oscar, I, I guess, and he's going off to McLaren, supposedly. So so I think they would be better off to stick with Mick. But you're right, Mark, if they do, he does need to do better. But I, I do think he's had a he's had a better couple of races, I think, and that's been um it's been good to see. Luck of the Chiefs someone as well. So I'm gonna actually go with Alfa Romeo, which is a slightly Ooh. odd one to go for, I know, because they've had a they did have a very good start to the season, but they haven't scored in four races. The little bit of question mark about the the development rates. Okay, they're, what, six in the championship if they finish there, that will be a good season for them. But it's just a little bit worrying that they've stagnated a little bit and not been picking up those points. That team does need to make sure it makes the most of this reset. I mean, they've talked about how important this year is about establishing themselves in a in a better position so they're not starting behind as they did the last rule cycle so yeah i'm uh, i'm picking on alfa romeo which might be a bit harsh a few months ago i'd have i'd have picked them up as a, a success story of the year but they need to keep on building on that and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsns varies by zip code and package high-speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. 
We haven't had the chance to talk about the latest step in the ongoing Porsche Red Bull saga. It's edging towards happening, clearly. But why do you think Red Bull is willing to sell 50% of its F1 operation to Porsche? And what exactly is the holdup? Uh, the holdup's the official publication of the 2026 engine regs. They need to be 100% certain of that before it gets the official nod. Then once that happens, I'd imagine it'll all tumble into place pretty quickly. Why might Red Bull do it? Well, the financials will be fantastic for Red Bull. It's taken advantage of the huge recent growth in F1's popularity and its own recent preeminence within it. If, the, if this team was on the stock exchange, its shares would be an all-time high at the moment. So that'll be reflected in how much Porsche is investing in this partnership. So it will essentially pay, and more probably, for the huge investment Red Bull has made and is making in Red Bull powertrains. And don't forget, it doesn't automatically mean this is now a half Porsche team forever. It could very easily be that 10 years down the line, Porsche has achieved its objectives and it leaves again, um, like BMW did with Sauber, although in that case it was triggered by the financial crisis. But this future-proofs the team, and there's a fantastic amount of racing technology within Porsche itself as well, um, which it's, it's going to have access to. So I, I can't see why there's a downside for a, either either partner in this, um, in, in, in this uh, partnership. Yeah, unfortunately, that document that leaked from, well, it didn't leak, it was available in, in Morocco from their uh, commerce board, effectively, they had to okay it. didn't actually say how much it would be, but given the value of F1 teams currently and the status of Red Bull, it'd be fascinating to know just how much that's going to cost Porsche to buy, and that's going to be a, a formidable uh, formidable amount. And it's, it's Red Bull technology they're buying into, but Red Bull technology really is the F1 team to all intents and purposes. It's not like an offshoot technology arm. That is the the main thrust of that company that designs and builds the cars for them. So yeah, another pigeon step for that story, but a significant one. And as you say, once the rules are done, we're expecting to hear something. Okay, let's move on to our final topic, which is at the Hungara Ring, we had Max Verstappen denouncing what he called disgusting burning of Mercedes-related merchandise by fans. There were serious problems with the harassment and abuse in Austria, which I think you looked into on social media quite a bit. F1's launched that Drive It Out campaign in response to this sort of thing. How serious is the problem? And is that campaign going to help? Just how powerful is a 30-second video going to be? I don't know. I respect F1 for taking it seriously. I respect them for putting something in place to address it. I don't think that's going to fix anything, but it's good to see that they are listening to what certain fans are going through obviously with the popularity changing massively with with formula one we've we've created new fans we've got um a lot more people getting involved in terms of um you know at events every single event that we've gone to has been incredibly busy just in the town hungary was was probably the busiest i think i've ever seen it um in any of the years that that i've gone there um and obviously with more crowds becomes more pack mentality and and um especially, you know, with groups of, of men, think, you know, fights do happen and, and arguments are had. So, you know, in, in any sort of scenario when there is more people, there will be more issues. Of course, we, we know this. In terms of Formula One releasing a, a video to try and stop it, um, again, still my same point. It doesn't go far enough to doing enough, but it, it does at least show that they are listening. It's a really difficult one because how do you keep fans very safe obviously more stewarding more um, security banning alcohol at certain times is probably going to be a helpful thing as well to stop people over drinking um, it's something I definitely noticed when I was walking through the streets of Hungary the amount of 
it's going to sound really gross, but the amount of sick I saw just walking in at nine in the morning to to drive my car, you know, there, w- there was, and there was lots of glass down by the, the river of smashed up um, alcohol bottles and things like that. You know, there is a, a lot of alcohol being consumed at these race weekends as well, um, which is absolutely fine, but it, you know, it does have an effect if, if things are getting out of control. Um, I spoke about this at the time and um, during Austria, I was I was catcalled as well as I walked into the the circuit. So as soon as I saw, and this was on the Saturday before I'd seen the Friday rather before I'd seen other women speaking out about the um, about the abuse they'd received, and I didn't think anything of it. But it was the first time really that I'd ever been catcalled walking into a, a race circuit, into work or whatever it is. Um, so I do know that that these things are happening. How we stop it? it's going to take a long time, I think, and it's it's going to take more than a 30-second video. But like I said, at least there is proof that people are listening. And I do know that F1 are looking to do more to try and stamp out this behaviour. Um, I think they need to probably think about a, compa- a campaign a, a lot better um, rather than more of a knee-jerk reaction, which this one sort of felt like it was. If they can think of a great campaign to to work together with fans to make it safer for, for certain people then, then great but um I, th- there's more to be done i think at this stage and burning merchandise is a is or the abuse that we've seen is just it's just gross it's just not nice and it's just not what formula one or sport should be about but unfortunately we see it we see it in football we see this mentality of of abusing people and you see homophobic abuse and all sorts of abuse so i really hope that it doesn't it isn't something we have to deal with in motorsport as well because I don't like going to football matches because of what I receive. I don't want that for fans going to motorsport events. Mark, what do you make of this? There does seem to have been a sea change recently in terms of entities like F1 being willing to tackle this, but it does seem to be that question of how, doesn't it? How do you actually make a tangible difference to something that isn't even an F1-specific problem, as Claire was just saying? It's a it's a wider world problem, isn't it? Yeah, and I think this video was just an acknowledgement that they... Um they understand the problem that uh, it's not going to solve anything in itself, but it, um, it, it just sort of makes clear what their attitude is going to be. And I think, yeah, I think the attitude's got to be fairly extreme. It's just, you know, um, you're not welcome. If, if, if you, if you're doing those things, if you're engaging in that sort of behavior, not just burning of merchandise, but cook, you know, ab- abusing people, whether it be racial, whether it be um, gender based, whatever it's, you're not welcome. Go away. And ideally, um, a system whereby the the offenders could be identified and banned for life. I think that's um, absolutely the way to go. That's what um, the drivers were saying off the back of the Austrian race. I think it was Sebastian Vettel was very vocal about it and said, ban them. And those, you know, the quotes from Toto Wolff, who said a word that I don't think I can say on the podcast, you know, and it said exactly the same as, as what Mark said there. You know, you're not, you're not welcome. And it is, it does come down to you know, you will get a ban and you can't come in. Yeah, it just comes down to the mechanism, doesn't it? They need to make sure there is a consistent way of of doing it. And it should be noted, you know, you see comments in response to this where people say that it's people talking up and there's always been, <laughs> that word that's always used is banter, isn't it? And there is a big, big difference between what we're talking about here and what you might call a little bit of good-natured rivalry. You, you can have a good-natured rivalry between different fans without it turning into this sort of thing. And that's that's the thing. I think people need to get that it's not just a, a policing of fun, as some like to put it. It's just actually creating a situation where it's safe for people to go to races and enjoy it without putting up with this kind of horrendous behaviour. 
And I think also what might be banter to you might not be banter to somebody else. So it's about respecting what someone else might find banter. If they're not laughing, then you're making a joke of them rather than their part and in on the joke. So it's absolutely about finding that boundary that banter isn't always what you think is banter. Yeah, exactly. And it's certainly not a get out of jail free card when it comes to any uh, any such problems being raised. That's the important thing. And it's good that it's coming up through social media and that kind of thing. It is easier for people to raise the general problem, but that doesn't help a great deal with the specific tackling of it. So yeah, good F1's looking to it. And, the, and we do know from what they're saying and what they're trying to do behind the scenes, they're taking it seriously. But also, as soon as you start wading into it, it's a very, very, very big problem. So it's going to need some some pretty big solutions. Well, thanks very much, Mark Hughes and Claire Cottingham, for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen, as there's loads to read there, even during the summer break. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s. We've got the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, IndyCar, MotoGP, Formula E. Plenty to listen to there. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. Formula One may be sleeping during the August break, but we shall keep going. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.